It's an overcast day in January 1954. A small fishing boat bobs on the waters of the Ligurian Sea off the northeast coast of Italy. Giovanni DiMarco's been a fisherman all his life, and he knows these waters well. He heads to the back of the boat and starts turning the winch to haul in his net. DiMarco empties the catch onto the deck and then stands back as the tuna and sea bream thrash around. He's about to sort through his catch when he hears a faint hum high in the sky. It's an unusual sound, but one he's been hearing more and more. The sound of one of those newfangled jet planes flying overhead. He looks up, hoping to catch a glimpse of the aircraft, but all he sees are gray clouds. Disappointed, he returns to his fish. But then, he hears a boom. DiMarco jerks his head up, but sees nothing. Then, he spots something. A large metallic object falls through the sky, leaving a trail of dark black smoke. He watches as more objects rain down, hitting the water several miles away. He quickly starts his engine and speeds to the spot where the objects are crashing into the sea. Half an hour later, DiMarco reaches the scene. The sea is full of floating debris. He sees a page from a newspaper, a crumpled pack of cigarettes, a yellow life jacket, a black high heel, and then dead bodies covered in blood. Hello? Hello? Can anyone hear me? Anyone alive? But there's no reply. Not a single one of the 35 people on board Flight 781 has survived. Flight 781 was a de Havilland Comet, the British-made airplane that ushered in the jet age just two years earlier. It's the only passenger jet in service, and it put Britain at the forefront of aviation technology. The tragedy doesn't stop the comet. It remains airborne. But then, just three months later, a second comet explodes in midair. And with it, Britain's dream of leading the jet revolution. By the time the previously poorly understood problem of metal fatigue is identified as the cause, de Havilland is a broken company. Its jet plane is grounded and it's hurtling towards bankruptcy. Europe's early lead in jet travel vaporizes. But Europe's loss will be America's gain. And that's because a military plane manufacturer called Boeing is about to use the comet's tragic demise as an opportunity to conquer the civilian jet market. If you travel for work, you know to pack two suits, business and swim. You know with your Delta Sky Miles Business Amex card, buying that plane ticket for a business trip can get you closer to medallion status. You know that a meeting in Montana means visiting almost every national park. Yellowstone? Check. Because you're the chief excursion officer. It's why you're a Delta Sky Miles Platinum Business American Express card member. If you travel, you know. Terms apply. Visit go.amex slash you know business. Now, since you're a podcast listener, I'm sure you know all about how audio just does something to the imagination. So I'm really excited to tell you about how Audible's brand new exclusive thrillers are brought to life with that kind of captivating sound design, the eerie soundscapes and dynamic performances. There's one that caught my eye. I should say it caught my ear. 
It's an Audible original called Sleeping Dogs Lie by Samantha Downey. It details the aftermath of a local businessman's murder in Marin County, California, a once sleepy suburb now part of the bustling Silicon Valley area. And as an Audible member, well, you get to keep one title a month from their entire catalog, including bestsellers and new releases. New members can try Audible now, free, for 30 days. Head on over to audible.com slash BW or text BW to 500-500. That's audible.com slash BW or text BW to 500-500 and try out Audible free for 30 days. From Wondery, I'm David Brown and this is Business Wars. In our new series, we're following the battle for air supremacy between the two titans of flight, Airbus and Boeing. It's a dogfight that pits Europe against America in a quest to dominate a market worth $190 billion a year. It's a business where a single order can dent the balance sheet of an entire nation, an industry where world leaders are routinely commandeered as sales reps, and with stakes that high, the competition's fierce, and there's plenty of turbulence ahead for both Boeing and Airbus. This is Episode 1, Get Your Wings. It's August 1955, and Boeing President Bill Allen is hosting a high-powered get-together on a fancy yacht on Lake Washington in Seattle. His guests are the who's who of the U.S. airline industry. They've spent the morning enjoying canapes and champagne while watching the Gold Cup speedboat races. But they're really here to see Boeing's first passenger jet. Since its formation in 1916, Boeing's made its name making military bombers. But in civil aviation, it remains a minor player, a minnow next to the Californian market leader Douglas. But Allen's hoping the company's first jetliner will change that. Boeing's new jet aircraft is called the Dash 80, but it'll soon get a new name, the 707. The 50-something Boeing chief checks his watch and turns to his guest. Attention, everyone. Okay, it's not going to be long now. I think you're going to love this. Moments later, the prototype 707 shoots past, flying just 300 feet above the water. At the controls is Boeing chief test pilot, Tex Johnson. The guests go wild as Johnson pulls the pale yellow jet skyward and begins a roll. As the jet rotates its bright white underbelly to the sky, showing the crowd its sleek curves, everyone on the yacht cheers. Everyone, that is, except Alan, who's watching Johnston's unscripted stunt, frozen in fear. He knows if Johnston messes this up, he could crash the 707 into the thousands of Gold Cup spectators lining the shores of Lake Washington. Johnston completes the 707's 360 without a hitch, and Allen breathes a sigh of relief. But then, Johnston circles the plane back around for another roll. Allen goes pale. He turns to the airline executive next to him. 
Give me some of those heart pills you're taking. I need them more than you. After the 707 flies away, airline executives rush to congratulate Alan. He smiles as they shake his hand and slap his back, but all he can think about is how he's going to wring Johnston's neck. The flashy maneuvers may have impressed the airline executives on the yacht, but only one of them is ready to put his money where his mouth is. It's September 1955, and the founder of Pan Am is at Boeing headquarters in Seattle. His name is Juan Tripp, and he's the most ambitious man in the airline business. Tripp started Pan Am in 1927. Since then, he's built it into one of the world's leading international carriers. And unlike his rivals, the comet disasters haven't dampened his excitement about jet planes. Tripp sits in Allen's corner office, lights his pipe, and looks at Allen. Bill, I want to buy your passenger jets. I really do. Jets are the future of air travel, and with the 707, you're now leading the way. But truth is, the 707 needs changes. Allen doesn't like the sound of that. Creating the 707 has tested Boeing's finances to the max. He's in no mood to go back to the drawing board. What changes? What I want, Bill, is for people to be able to leave New York at noon and be sitting in a sidewalk cafe in Paris by midnight. Now, for that to happen, I need the 707 to be the biggest passenger plane on the market. It should have space for 150 passengers rather than the 130 you're proposing. I also want it to use the new engine that Pratt & Whitney's making. With that engine, it'll be able to cross the Atlantic nonstop. Alan balks. No, no, that's not possible. The technology's just not there yet. I am not redesigning the 707 around some paper engine that's years away from entering production. Tripp takes his pipe out of his mouth. I'm sure you can do it. But if you won't make the airplane I want, then I'll find someone who will. Alan eyeballs the Pan Am boss. He's convinced Tripp's bluffing. After all, who could he get to make his ideal jet plane? The only possible alternative is the DC-8 jet that Douglas is working on. But all Douglas has is a drawing on paper that also falls short of Tripp's demands. Boeing's got an actual jet that flies. Allen calls Tripp's bluff. Like I said, Juan, I'm not changing the design. Shortly after their meeting, Pan Am orders 21 707s. It's a $100 million deal, and Allen's delighted. He thinks he's got the better of the Pan Am founder. But Tripp isn't a man who takes no for an answer. It's October 1955, and in his Seattle office, Allen's feeling sick. Yesterday, Tripp announced to the press that he's not only buying 707s, he's also ordered 24 Douglas DC-8 passenger jets. It's a move that makes it clear to the aviation industry that Tripp's only buying Boeing in case the DC-8 doesn't live up to its promise. In short, Tripp's saying he thinks Boeing's 707 is second best, and since most other U.S. airlines will likely follow Pan Am's lead, Allen knows this could doom the 707 and Boeing. Allen picks up his phone and calls Tripp. Hello, Bill. I was expecting your call. Okay, well, here's the deal, Juan. I'll make the changes you want. 
But in return, you dump those DC-8s. Bill, Bill, that's all I ever wanted. I knew you could do it. On October 26, 1958, the first 707 passenger flight leaves New York's Idlewild Airport for Paris. To mark the occasion, Pan Am puts out a film promoting its new non-stop transatlantic service. This is it, the first American commercial jet capable of economical transatlantic service, the Boeing 707 Jet Clipper. Transoceanic flights now become short hops, six and a half magic hours to Europe. Pan Am's order for the 707 is Boeing's breakthrough moment. After years as a bit player in civil aviation, it is now in a position to challenge Douglas for control of the skies. As demand for jet travel booms, Boeing and Douglas launch new jetliners, tighten profit margins to win airline orders, and compete to set the standard on safety. Each company becomes leaner and tougher, and they eat into the market share of Europe's aircraft makers who are still desperately trying to get their industry off the ground. The relaunch of the Comet ends in failure, banging the final nail into the coffin of Britain's de Havilland. France's great hope, the Caravelle, finds itself outmaneuvered by the American giants. Even the optimism around the British-French supersonic jet, the Concorde, is evaporating. The high-profile jetliner project is mired in delays, out-of-control costs, and bickering between the French and British governments. By 1965, Europe's aviation industry is on life support, surviving on the largesse of state-owned airlines and government bailouts. Europe looks destined to become a consumer, not a producer of aircraft. Yet again, the once dominant old world is being left behind by a super-powered America. So much so that Boeing and Douglas rarely ask themselves what the European manufacturers are doing these days. But under the radar, Europe's aviation industry is plotting a comeback. It's October 1965, and the leaders of Europe's aviation industry are holed up in the meeting room of a hotel next to London's Heathrow Airport. Around the long conference table are representatives from every part of the aerospace industry, state-owned airlines like Air France and West Germany's Lufthansa, British engine maker Rolls-Royce, aircraft manufacturers like England's Hawker Siddeley and France's Sud Aviation. They're all here to debate an idea that's been floating around the continent for the past three years. A French executive from Sud Aviation opens the discussions. Look, none of us have the means to stand alone against Boeing or Douglas in the jet plane market. But if we pool our resources, we could bail a short-haul jet to move passengers between European cities. We have to create this Airbus. A British executive shakes his head in despair. My word, are we still calling it that? Who would want to ride on a flying bus? A puzzled West German responds. What is wrong with a bus? Buses are nice and clean and arrive on time. Well, trust me, my fellow Englishman would not recognize a bus like that. Irritated, the French executive steers the meeting back on track. The executives argue endlessly, 
Every company and country wants a different Airbus. Unable to reach consensus, they appoint a small team to distill the competing ideas into a proposal that will persuade their governments to bankroll their Eurojet. Over the next 18 months, the Airbus project gathers speed. The manufacturers behind the project settle on making a twin-engine, short-haul jet that will carry at least 250 passengers. And that's enough to convince the French, West German, and British governments to part with the $460 million needed to design the Airbus. For West Germany, it's a chance to bolster a domestic aviation industry that got shut down for years after World War II. For France, it's a way to push back against Americanization. And for Britain, it's an opportunity to line the pockets of engine maker Rolls-Royce. Still, the three governments have modest expectations for the project. At most, they think their state-owned airlines will buy 250 Airbuses. But the French aerospace engineer they appoint to coordinate the project is thinking bigger, much bigger. He doesn't just want to make the Airbus for Europe. He wants it to take on America. It's early 1968, and Airbus coordinator Roger Bette is in Fort Worth, Texas. Bette is a slender man with dark, teased-up hair, and he's come to America to visit American Airlines technical director Frank Kolk. Bette sits in Kolk's office and lays his cards on the table. The Airbus project is too focused on Europe. I want the Airbus to appeal to U.S. airlines, too. So tell me, what kind of jet does American Airlines truly want? Kolk nods and opens his desk drawer. He pulls out a brown folder and hands it to Batea. This is what I want. Here are the specifications for a two-engine jet aircraft that can transport 250 people up to 1,500 miles. Batea studies the design as Kolk speaks. Boeing and Douglas refuse to make it. They say only jets with three or four engines can do what I want. Batea shakes his head. What nonsense. Of course it can be done. Why use three engines when you can do the same job with two? Kolk hits the desk with his hand. Exactly! Exactly! Two engines are all you need! Batea leaves Fort Worth, armed with a brand new template for what the Airbus should be. Over the next year, Batea works with the European manufacturers to design a jet that closely aligns with Cole's vision. They call it the A300. Design done, the Airbus Consortium asks Britain, France, and West Germany to hand over the hundreds of millions needed to put the A300 into production. But the consortium's about to discover that not everyone's willing to pay their share of the tab. It's February 1969. And in Bonn, West German Chancellor Kurt Kiesinger and British Prime Minister Harold Wilson are briefing the press on their latest annual summit. But when they open the floor to questions, reporters immediately zero in on the cracks in the Airbus alliance. Will there be British funding for the Airbus? The German Chancellor steals himself. 
Britain's Prime Minister Wilson takes his pipe from his mouth and responds with his trademark use of metaphors when speaking. Britain will not heedlessly spend money on this. The reality is aerospace collaboration is a desert track littered with the whitening bodies of abortive joint projects mostly undertaken at high cost. For France and West Germany, that's the final straw. So they issue an ultimatum to Britain. Get on board, or the Airbus takes off without you. Wilson responds by pulling Britain out of the Airbus project. He thinks Rolls-Royce will be better off chasing American dollars. And with the cost of the much-delayed Concorde spinning out of control, he's wary of getting Britain entangled in yet another European aviation project. Britain's exit plunges the Airbus project into crisis. British aircraft manufacturer Hawker Siddeley was supposed to make the A300's wings, but the company can't afford to do that without backing from the British government. And without wings, the Airbus is grounded. May 1969, Bonn, West Germany. Franz Josef Strauss scurries as fast as he can down the corridors of the German finance department. The rotund Bavarian politicians on a mission to save Airbus and time's running out. If the future of Airbus isn't resolved in time for the Paris Air Show later this month, the consortium could fall apart. Strauss is a powerful figure in West German politics. He leads the country's third biggest political party, and right now, that party can tip the balance of power. Strauss also sees himself as the champion of Germany's aviation industry. He believes Airbus is critical to its future. He enters the office of economics minister Carl Schiller and slumps into a chair, his brow damp with sweat. Schiller quietly waits for Strauss to say what's on his mind. You need to step in and subsidize Hawker Siddeley. Without them, the Airbus project is finished. Schiller peers through his spectacles at Strauss and shakes his head. I cannot justify that. Why should German taxpayers support a British company? Can't someone here make the wings instead? Strauss mops his brow with a handkerchief. No, the wings, the wings are the single most important and complicated part of any aircraft. No one else in Europe can match Hawker Siddeley's expertise. The Airbus project needs them. Schiller shakes his head. Then they can get the French to pay. They want to lead the project, don't they? The French refuse to do it. They're already too heavily invested in Concorde. But listen, this could be good for Germany. Saving the Airbus will protect our aviation industry. Also, by putting more money in, we become equal partners with France. Schiller looks unmoved. So Strauss tries another angle of attack. Remember, this project is about so much more than just making aircraft. It's about European unity. It's about bringing our nations closer together and putting the past behind us. It's about reconciliation. Schiller softens. The horror of the Second World War still haunts the continent. The desire to bring Europe together and end centuries of bloodshed carries serious weight, even when millions of Deutschmarks are at stake. Very well. I'll arrange for the funds to be made available. Later that month, at the Paris Air Show, Schiller and the French transport minister signed the deal that will see the Airbus 
turn from a paper plane into an actual aircraft. As press photographers capture the moment, the two politicians shake hands and smile. But what they don't realize is they've just signed a declaration of commercial war, a war that's going to put Europe and America at loggerheads for decades to come. On the next episode, Boeing supersizes air travel and Airbus finally makes a plane that nobody wants. Hey, Prime members, you can binge every episode of Business Wars ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com survey. From Wondery, this is Business Wars. A quick note about the conversations in this episode. We can't know exactly what was said, but this dialogue is based on our best research. I'm your host, David Brown. Tristan Donovan wrote this story. Karen Lowe is our senior producer and editor. Produced by Emily Frost. Sound designed by Kyle Randall. Our executive producers are Jenny Lauer-Beckman and Marshall Louie. Created by Hernan Lopez for Wondering. It's all a lighthearted nightmare on our podcast, Morbid. We're your hosts. I'm Alina Urquhart. And I'm Ash Kelly. And our show is part true crime, part spooky, and part comedy. The stories we cover are well-researched. He claimed and confessed to officially killing up to 28 people. With a touch of humor. I'd just like sure. to go ahead and say that if there's no band called Malevolent Deity, that is pretty great. A dash of sarcasm and just garnished a bit with a little bit of cursing. This motherfucker lied like a liar like a liar and if you're a weirdo like us and love to cozy up to a creepy tale of the paranormal or you love to hop in the wayback machine and dissect the details of some of history's most notorious crimes you should tune in to our podcast morbid follow morbid on the wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts you can listen to episodes early and ad free by joining wondery plus and the wondery app or on apple podcasts